In this week's show, we are honored to have the world-renowned scholar John Dominic Croissant. He was born in Ireland in 1934 and was educated in both Ireland and the United States. He received a Doctorate of Divinity from Maynooth College in 1959 and did postdoctoral research at the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome as well as at the École Biblique in Jerusalem. He was a member of a 13th-century Roman Catholic religious order, the Servites, and was ordained as a priest from 1957 to 1969. He joined the DePaul University faculty in Chicago in 1969 and remained there until 1995. He is now a professor emeritus in its Department of Religious Studies. He has written 27 books on the historical Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and earliest Christianity. His most recent book is How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, Struggling with Divine Violence from Genesis to Revelation. So tell us a little bit about the, the premise of your latest book. Well, first of all, I'm talking about the Christian Bible all the way from Genesis through Revelation. That's very important because some Christians talk about a, a sort of a good cop God in the New Testament and then a bad cop God in the Old Testament which really doesn't work very well if you actually make the mistake of reading the whole book, because the most violent book in the entire Bible and maybe in the entire literature of the great religions, canonical literature of the great religions, is the book of Revelation, which concludes the Christian Bible. So the question is, is the God of the Bible violent? And basically, if not inviting us to participate promising us not to worry that God has greater violence capacities than we have in any case. And so at the end, God will solve everything by killing all the evil ones, which are presumably other people, non-Christians, up, up to blood to the bridles of the horses for 200 miles, which, of course, is a, a metaphor, uh, an exaggeration. But basically, all the metaphors of the book of Revelation are violent. And could someone say that that was part of the culture back then or part of the uh, barbaric world that the people who wrote the books lived in and it resonated with people to talk about conquering uh, other armies and taking over and then in a sense it was a form of retribution for, for the type of oppression that they were experiencing? Of course they could. And in fact, the... People of Israel, now talking about the people of, before the time of Jesus, had known that every single empire that had ever existed, for as far as they were concerned, for example, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Macedonian Greeks of Alexander, had invaded them, put their boot on their neck, and in the book of Daniel, so we're now still in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, they announced that there was going to be a different kingdom, a kingdom of God, they called it, instead of all of these empires. And at the time of Jesus, now moving into the first century, when the Romans were Romanizing the Jewish homeland, there were, of course, people who rose against them in the name of God and were rather brutally conquered. And there were also people, I'm not talking now about Jesus at all, I'm talking about non-Christian Jews, who used nonviolent resistance against Rome, as distinct from those who used violent resistance. So both of those options were already there in the first century, and it is bad history to say that, well, since empires conquer, all opposition to them is counter-conquering. There were other 
acts of imagination already in the first century, which we would describe as nonviolent resistance to Romanization. So what would you say about uh, to people who are have a traditional understanding of the Bible and they are concerned that modern scholars are emasculating God by only talking about nonviolence and only talking about this kind of modern version of, of God, and it takes away some of the cultural context, some of the aspects of retribution, of holiness and repentance and things like that that resonated very well with the people of that time. Well, first of all, it's, it's bad history to make a sort of generalization like that. And by the way, of course, you can't emasculate God unless you think he's male, by the way. So let's leave that aside for the moment. Let me say the most, <clears throat> the clearest things we know about Jesus is that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. And that means that Pilate considered him not just a minor nuisance, but a, a revolutionary, to put it bluntly, because he didn't waste iron nails and a squad of soldiers and a public execution unless he wanted to make a public statement, don't do what this guy did or you'll end like this guy has. On the other hand, we also know that Pilate did not round up Jesus' closest companions. And that is how Romans and Romanizers handled nonviolent resistance. If you were violent, they grabbed as much, many of you as they could and lined you all up in a light, nice row of crosses, like the 2000 they crucified outside Jerusalem in 4 BCE around the time of the birth of Jesus. If, however, you were a nonviolent rebel against Rome, or you were, in, in the words of their own law, you were causing a tumult among the people, in other words, you were what we would call an activist. In other words, you weren't just a philosopher talking but you were an activist, but not violent. What the Romans did was pick off the leader. And if you're still at it, five years later, your next leader, and your next leader, till you got the message. So if I only know those two things, that Pilate crucified Jesus and didn't crucify his closest companions, I'd know exactly that his program, and that is the kingdom of God, was involved in nonviolent resistance to the Roman occupation of the Jewish homeland. And that, whether we like it or not, is history. So it's not an argument that others were doing different things, which they were, because some Jews were doing this nonviolent resistance. It's the same as if you were to argue that Gandhi couldn't have been using nonviolent resistance against the British Empire in India because other people were using violence. So. If people would actually read their Bible, and not just talk about it or wave it, but actually read it, what they would find all the way through is that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a peace donkey. And if they want to bring him back on a war horse, then what they're saying is the incarnation didn't work. And, all right, Jesus, get this out of your system come back on a war horse and slaughter people. And I don't think that's good theology or is the theology of the Bible. Well, let's go back to the beginning of the Bible. And, you know, most scholars would say that it was written by many authors. Could it be that um, there was different emphasis placed by different authors regarding violence and all these theological constructs? Or was it that 
somehow the authors who spoke about peace and saw God as nurturing and forgiving, they were covered over by the ones that they were more interested in retribution. And then also, you know, people talk about our own reading of the Bible. So if we want to read it as a violent book, we could pick all the parts that we think are violent and use them. Or if we want to read it as a peaceful book, we can focus on the peaceful part. So how, how do we stay away from nitpicking things? Thank you. That's really, I'm going to summarize the book because <clears throat> you're quite right. If you go to the Bible, honestly, you can get a whole list of names that God uses violence, uh, Joshua, for example, conquering the Canaanites. Or you can get a whole series of different visions of God, say in the book of Isaiah, who's going to solve the injustice of the world by having a giant feast in Jerusalem for all the people of the world, and they're going to beat their swords in the plowshare and their spears in the pruning hooks, and they're all going to sleep or sit rather under their own vine and their own uh, fig tree, and nobody's going to make them a tree. Both those visions are there. Now, if you go to the Bible, and if you are a Christian, we're talking about the Christian Bible, what is the norm of the Bible? Is it simply a matter of, well, I kind of like violence, or I think I think it's kind of good for us, so I'm going with all the violent stuff. Well, I'm a nice person. I don't like violence. I'll go with the nonviolent stuff. My answer is very clear. Jesus is, for Christians, the norm of the Bible. Or as some evangelicals would say correctly, what would Jesus do? They don't say WWBS. What does the Bible say or what would the Bible say? Jesus is the criterion of the Bible. Those who don't like, including in the Bible, his own vision of a nonviolent God who is imaged in a nonviolent Jesus, those who don't like that will have to invent a second coming. The first coming didn't work, apparently. Bring Jesus back again. Forget this donkey stuff out of Zechariah chapter 9 when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey in order to symbolize the nonviolent arrival of a nonviolent Messiah. Forget all that stuff. Bring Jesus back on a war horse as the great slaughterer. So, yes, you're perfectly right. If you go to the entire Bible, it's not all this lovely stuff, and then all the bad stuff is out in the world. The struggle is going on within the Bible, with God, actually. And the very simple question is, are we, I'm talking about now myself or whoever we're talking about, are we Bible-ians or Christ-ians? Or another way of putting it, to Islam, we are not really the people of the book. We're the people of the person. And the person, I say again, is Jesus, who talked in the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it in Matthew's Gospel, about not using violence and acted accordingly. Sometimes Christians will portray the Jewish community of the time of Jesus as worse than the Taliban, in the sense of they stone people on the street, they oppress women, they oppress non-Jews, and they portray Jesus as like the, the liberator or the one who brought a different type of a mentality. But in my studies, I've found that, like you said, there was different trends and different interpretations, but there is a very strong sense of, of justice, of quality, of caring for the poor and the sick and from the Hebrew scriptures, if Jesus personified that, that is, like you said, a good example of someone who, who took his own scriptures and lived them out to the best of his knowledge, as compared to the way that other Jews are portrayed as turning it into a very oppressive system. Is there any evidence of that stereotype about 
first century Jews even existing? Because I've read things where it was more of a theological construct to kind of create a, a distinction between the early Christians and the rest of the Jewish population. Yeah, I mean, what you've just described is anti-Judaism at best and anti-Semitism at worst. Everything is bad in the Jewish homeland at the time of Jesus, and along comes the shining anti-type Jesus. And there's only one problem with it. It's bunk. That's a polite word for it. It's bad history, to put it bluntly. And I'm not saying that just because of post-Holocaust sensitivity. I'm saying it's simply bad history. That's not what we know from Josephus. To repeat what I said before, if we leave Jesus out completely, there was, for example, of well, let me back up. The general matrix of the situation is the Romanization of the Jewish homeland. That's what's happened. 60 BCE, before the time of Jesus, the Romans arrived. The last, <laughs> the most recent of the great empires and mightier board, it has arrived to Romanize the Jewish homeland. And in 4 BCE, the death of Herod the Great, there's an armed rebellion against the Romans. It's put down brutally. There's another one in 66, even, even worse. Now, in the lull, I'm using the word lull, I won't use the word peace, between those two armed revolutions in the, what would it be, 70 years, which also includes the time of John the Baptist, time of Jesus, there is evidence in Josephus, so not from Jesus, of various styles of nonviolent resistance, of organized nonviolent resistance. I don't, I don't mean people who are just living holy lives and ignoring the Romans. I mean, for example, when Caligula tried to put his statue into the temple in Jerusalem, this would be the winter of 4041, and told Petronius, the legate of Syria, to take two legions and his statue. Caligula figured, if I'm God, shouldn't, shouldn't my statue be in Jerusalem's temple? And take it down from Syria, from Antioch, the Roman capital of Syria, take it down, put it in the temple. And, of course, he's two legions with him because he knows what's liable to happen. And both Philo, the Jewish philosopher, and Josephus, the Jewish historian, talk about tens of thousands of men, women, and children confronting Petronius, who is the legate from Syria, at his um, praetorium, his camp, both at Ptolemaeus on the coast and Tiberius on the lake, and in effect doing a sit-down strike, because it says it was the time of planting and the Romans were aware that if there was no planting, next year there would be a harvest of banditry. Of course, when people are starving, you might as well die in any case. And they told the Romans, we're not armed, and if you're going to kill us, you're going to have to kill us, but we are not going to allow this. We're we're just going to (laughs) do what you and I would call a sit-down agricultural strike. It's nonviolent. They declare they're not armed, and backed up, if necessary, by martyrdom. Now, that was there in the Jewish homeland, and anyone who writes a history of the first century, I'm not talking about Jesus, forget Jesus for the moment. Jesus had never existed, this would have still gone on. Anyone who writes a history of the first century and talks only of the armed rebellions against Rome might as well, as I said, go back to what I said before, write a history of India and forget about Gandhi before the British left. These were options within the historical experience of the Jewish people. And it's in that matrix that Jesus operates in terms of nonviolent resistance 
Except, of course, he insists that this is the kingdom of God that we've been awaiting for, and it's only here when we participate with God in nonviolent resistance. I don't want to talk about Jesus as nonviolent. The Romans did not kill people who are nonviolent. They did kill people who are nonviolent resistors. They also, of course, killed people who are violent resistors. When scholars speak of the Bible, it's easy for them to ridicule people who don't understand it by saying that their reading of the Bible is not sophisticated enough. Is that a fair thing to say, or is that a cop-out for people that don't want to deal with the difficult passages and the issues that at times are brought up? Well, I would hope, when I was writing How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, I thought it was not really the Bible was so difficult. Most people, when they read it, if they like it, they may emphasize the good parts about, you know, peace and love and God's final solution is going to be, as I said, the great feast in Jerusalem and all the nations will be peaceful and no more war. That's all there. It is there. So also are the places where where the Bible author says that God told us to do this, that, and the other. Rather unspeakable slaughter, say, all the men, women, and children in a given place. They're both there. And any reader who actually reads the Bible. It doesn't take any sophistication to see both. Now, if you haven't read it and you dislike it, of course, you mention all the bad stuff. And if you haven't read it and like it, <laughs> you mention all the good stuff. If you've actually read it and draw a line down the middle of the page, you could put all the bad stuff on one side and the good stuff on the other side. Then any honest person says, okay, either I've got a schizophrenic God or... You know, a God who doesn't know what should be done, or is there no criterion in the Bible itself? I'm not talking about you or I making this judgment. Let's keep all the good stuff, or let's keep all the good stuff and the bad stuff, or something like that. Is there no criterion within the Bible? And my answer to that is yes, of course, there's a criterion within the Christian Bible. It's Jesus. And it's quite clear in what Jesus says in what Jesus does, and in the way the Romans handled him, namely, again, by crucifying him publicly, but not rounding up his followers, that if we only knew that, and we know that, by the way, both from Josephus at the end of the first century and Tacitus at the beginning of the second century, that the Romans crucified Jesus to stop his movement, and they both admit, sort of with, I don't know if it's surprise or dismay, that it didn't work. The movement spread, even though we killed the founder and that should have stamped out the fire, as it were. So good history means reading all we know about the first century, then and only then putting Jesus in there, as part of your theology, and then you get a pretty good idea of what's going on, and you can explain why (laughs) the Apostles' Creed in the one time it dips into the first century, historically says, crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's exactly right. Let's talk theologically about the God of the Bible. What would be for you a clear passage or a clear theological construct of the the person of God, and how does that relate to your vision of Jesus? A good place to start would be the first page of the Bible. The very opening, we call it Genesis chapter 1, and I'd emphasize that because it was not written as the very first part of the Bible. Scholars are pretty certain it was written to be, to be the first part of the Bible, like 
if I was writing a book and the, the overture or the preface or the introduction is the very last thing written. So you put that up front to say, here's what it's all about. And in the first chapter of Genesis, God creates human beings, male and female, it's quite clear, male and female. And then God gives them charge of the world to run the world for God, with God, as God. They're told that they're made in God's image and likeness, and that's immediately interpreted as sort of like agents of God. It's almost like an owner giving a steward the farm to, to be run. And, of course, you have to run the farm the way the... A steward has to run the farm the way the owner wants, or you'll be an ex-steward real fast. So in this first chapter, human beings are put in this earth, made in God's image and likeness, in other words, to act like God on earth. And that you immediately know what that is because the very first thing that happens then is the Sabbath. And throughout the, the Torah, the Sabbath, be it the Sabbath day, the Sabbath year, the Sabbath jubilee, is something like the metronome of history. And it's tick-tocking, tick-tocking for justice. So when you get the Sabbath day legislated later in, say, Exodus, it is so that everyone has a right to a rest. We might think of the, the Sabbath or Sunday as something about going to synagogue or church. But it says that everyone, including your, your draft animals, your ass and your ox, have to get a a day off, have to get a rest, so does your slave. Now, that mightn't impress us very much, but basically, in the ancient world, you had to keep your slave alive, so you had to feed your slave, but you didn't have to give him or her any rest. So the idea that the Sabbath was about everyone, the householder, the children, the draft animals, the slaves, the servants, indeed the land itself, getting a rest is sort of the universal justice, which is actually the beating heart of the Hebrew Bible. We're talking about the Hebrew Bible now. It's taken over, of course, into the Christian Bible, so it's there as well. But first page of the Bible, read it, and you have the vision of God that's going to be normative for the entire Bible. So when Jesus comes along, and Christians think of Jesus as the image of God, the revelation of God, sort of what God looks like in sandals, as it were, then you have to presume this, this God we're talking about. Otherwise, what you'd have is a violent God and a nonviolent Jesus, and Christianity would have a complete disruption at its heart. That would be my question for, for people who say, well, God is very angry and very makes decisions uh, abruptly, and atheist groups compare the God of the Bible to a four-year-old. Um, when he tells people to go one way and go another and fight against one group and another. And and I'm like, if you compare it to the other deities of that time and the, the creation myths, it's a completely different construct, especially, like you said, when there's the emphasis on creating things good, of um, things being whole or, or fulfilled. And there's none of this conflict between different sources of chaos, different deities fighting against each other or killing each other's children to bring about the world. It's a different uh, premise altogether. So do you think that whenever we run into passages that seem more archaic or more in line with the barbaric culture of that time, do you think that 
is the author's ideas that are coming through or is it part of the revelation that most religious people would see as coming from God? I don't know if we can get out of it that easily, David, because both, let's call them the good parts and the bad parts, the, the good cop God and the bad cop God, are both announced in the Bible in the name of God. They're both there, and therefore that raises the issue, and did, of course, long before Jesus. Well, what is happening? Is, is God growing up? Are we dealing with not the four-year-old, but the two-year-old? Are we having a sort of maturity going on? But I think there is a more profound dualism going on. It's the normalcy of civilization for the last 10,000 years since the Neolithic Revolution on the plains of Mesopotamia, Iraq, has been really about conquest, war, victory, and if you want to talk about peace, of what I call peace through victory. That would be the mantra of Rome and of every empire that ever was. And I'm inclined to call that the normalcy of civilization. But then again and again through the Bible, you get that, by the way. You get that. But then you also get another vision, and it's the two visions that are fascinating. A vision of a world where justice is going to be established, not by our group killing your group, since we're the nice people and you're the bad people, but in a universal justice. Now, you don't get a description anywhere in the Bible of how exactly it's going to work out, but you do get it as a horizon, sort of, of something like cosmic possibility. And it seems to me, as I look at it now, not from any kind of a Christian or a religious point of view, but simply from the point of view of human evolution and the growth, the exponential growth of violence, I don't mean that we are getting more violent. I mean we are getting more dangerous instruments of violence. I, I don't think a person who might use um, an atomic weapon is any more evil than a person who might have used the sword in the first century. The difference being, of course, that a Roman sword in the first century is not really capable of even cutting down a, an olive tree, let alone destroying the Mediterranean. But we have weapons today that can destroy the world and our own species. So what exactly are we supposed to do with that exponential growth of violence? That, that's the bigger question, bigger even than the Bible itself. But it is faced in the Bible. Is there a different vision? And it's, it's not like it arrives with Jesus and then everyone is happy because, as I said, the book of Revelation wants to reverse it. The book of Revelation wants to go back to the good old days. And, okay, now maybe we're not going to do slaughter, say, the Romans, but God's going to do it far better than we could ever do it with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And you don't get the idea in the book of Revelation that we're supposed to, to join God in this great annihilation of evildoers. You do get that in the Left Behind series, of course. But in the book of Revelation, it's only God, Christ, and the angels who are going to do it. There are many people who have issues against biblical passages that appear to oppress women. But compared to the Sumerians and the Romans, women uh, were seen as humans and, and had rights. Then there's issues with slaves, but slaves were given freedom on, during sabbatical year, and it was a different type of 
slavery uh, as compared to the what we know. And then the conflict with other nations always had to do with some type of persecution or them making peace with them through some type of repenting or or coming to terms with with the community that we're fighting. Are those legitimate concerns, or does it have something to do with not understanding context of that time? And when we see things from modern eyes, it's really easy to become judgmental of what everybody was talking about back then, but without looking at through the prism of of their experience, how can we manage those type of conflictive things that that we run into? Well, for example, if if I could focus in the New Testament for a second and then on Paul, in Paul's letter to Philemon, or Philemon, however people pronounce it, what has happened is that his slave Onesimus, typical slave's name is the Greek word for useful, his slave Onesimus has, has asked Paul to intercede with him, and Paul converts Onesimus to Christianity, and then he tells his owner, Philemon, that a Christian master, a Christian, cannot own a Christian slave. So already you're starting to cut into the Roman vision of slavery. But when you read certain letters like Colossians and Ephesians that were written after Paul, in Paul's name, you're right back in Roman normalcy, where it is taken absolutely for granted that, of course, Christians own slaves, but Christian slaves should be obedient and Christian owners should be kind. So what you have from Paul is a radical vision in which Christians opt out completely of the Roman normalcy of slavery, the slave economy, and what you get in Colossians and Ephesians is a liberal view. Of course you have slaves, so be nice to them. So the same thing that Jesus' vision of nonviolent resistance is changed back into the violent normalcy in the book of Revelation. The same thing happens to Paul on patriarchy and on slavery. His vision, which is a denial of the Roman values of slavery and of patriarchy, and indeed of their basic value of of war and victory, is denied by Paul for Christians. And it is, how would I put this, Paul is re-Romanized. He is morphed back into Roman normalcy by later letters written in his name, in his name, but after he is dead. So you have a process throughout the entire Bible, from beginning to end, in which you get a radical vision from God, and then it is sort of admitted, of course, it's, it's there, you can read it, and then quietly it is changed back into the normalcy of civilization. And both of them are there. In fact, the glory of the Bible, I'm not talking about the entire Christian Bible from beginning to end. The honesty, the glory of the Bible is that you don't get all the bad stuff, which we wouldn't need, we can do that by ourselves, or all the good stuff, which would make it kind of just utopian. What you get in the Bible is an honest struggle between God and the people in the Bible. And that's where most of us are most of the time. We, we hear a radical call to peace or to love, and then we say, well, that'd be a yeah, 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 but, you know, let's get on with it. And so the Bible is a 
perfect mirror to what what happens in civilization. Whenever we get this radical vision of what a world might be like if we didn't have war, if we didn't have violence. And we like it. Of course we like it. Every Christmas we talk about peace on earth. And then when Christmas is over and the decorations are put away, peace on earth goes right back into the attic with the decorations. So I think I've spent my life with the Bible, and what I love about it is its honesty. It, it holds a mirror up to us and says, you want to see what you're like? This is the way people have always been like. Now, are you going to stay like this, or are you going to try, finally, and accept the challenge of nonviolent resistance rather than violent resistance to evil? I once was challenged about the conquest of Canaan. In my research, I found that the most satisfying answer for me was that it was uh, some type of didactical metaphor in relation to being able to keep the commandments and some type of, again, the retribution thing. But in Jewish sources, there's a debate between can people really be condemned because of their own personal sin or are children able to inherit the sin of their fathers? They keep on saying, well, God forbid that that would happen because it would be it would show that God would not be a compassionate God if he would blast everybody together. So the way they work around this, they say that it is a metaphor or it's a special dispensation just for the one group of people because of the situation. And there's all this technical way to work away from the idea that women and children and whole villages were destroyed in the time of war within God's calling to do that, what would be the Christian way of, of understanding this, especially since that's something that is brought up a lot? Well, the first thing you'd have to do is ask what is the historical events behind that. For example, if you read the book of Joshua, it's almost as if you were reading something like D-Day. The Israelites storm across the Jordan, and go south, central, and north, conquer and slaughter, and there they are. That's not what happened. It's not because I, I don't want to admit it happened. It's not a metaphor. It's, it's a dream. It's a, it's a way of describing maybe a wish fulfillment, but it didn't happen like that. You get a far more honest vision of what actually happened in the book of Judges, where it's all a piecemeal kind of whoever these people are and whoever came out of Egypt and however they came out of Egypt and however they controlled the highlands uh, of Israel were kind of negotiating backwards and forwards with all the residents that were there. They weren't slaughtering them for the very simple reason that they were not able to do it. These were walled cities. So the idea that they lunged into Israel and <laughs> the walls of Jericho fell down and I, I don't know if I, what I would call it. It's something like a dream, <laughs> oh, how it might have been, how it should have been. But it wasn't what happened. It's bad history. It's simply bad history. It's as, if, it's as if you had a story in the New Testament in which all the Christians took up swords, slaughtered the Romans, and drove them out of the Jewish homeland. If you had a story like that, everyone would simply say, yeah, yeah, right. Um, so the first thing you would have to do before you start talking about metaphors or anything else is do the best history you can of how do you understand the arrival or the revolt of the Israelites in Canaan. 
What was it? Was the massive invasion? Was the slow takeover when maybe the imperial control from Egypt was, was loosening? You'd have to do history first. In fact, I'm going to announce that as a principle. Do your history first. If you get bad history, you get bad theology. If you get good history, you probably should get good theology. But there's no way you're going to bring good theology out of bad history. So the very first thing is don't take refuge in it's a metaphor or anything else, even if you know, people have done that in good intentions. I would say get the best historical overview you can of what the exodus from Egypt, the arrival in Canaan, what was it actually like? What really happened? And you have archaeology at least on your side there to help you. Do you actually find evidence in the stratification of the city of Jericho that there were giant walls and all of a sudden they fell down because the Israelites marched around them with trumpets? Those are dreams of conquest, dreams of victory. You might call them delusions of victory. They're certainly not history. So the first thing I would do is get your history right. In an interview with Neil Donald Walsh, the guy who wrote the book, Conversations with God, he was saying that we need a new God because the God of the Bible is very violent. He claims he counted the number of people killed in the Bible as a million people. And that was his whole premise, that if you just take the, the Bible as face value, there's just so much violence that why even partake of it? Why even take it seriously? You just dismiss the whole thing because it is a violent book and it supports violence. And why would anybody want to be associated with such a cruel God? And it's a fair reading, as I said, of, of half of the Bible. It's like looking at one side of a coin. You can't look at one side of a coin. There's two sides of it. You have, he's quite right. There are awful parts in the Bible, and I don't know if he includes the book of Revelation in there, but I want to make certain he does, because I have no way I have any sympathy with the idea that all the slaughter is in the Old Testament, as it were, and then the New Testament is all fine. That's just not true. What you have in the Bible, I repeat, is an honest dialect between the solution to all the problems being in slaughter and victory, and that gives you everything, then you get peace, and another vision, a counter vision, which would say you will never get peace through victory. You get peace through justice, and justice is going to have to be Nonviolent, And if there is evil, if there is injustice, it must be resisted, it must be and should be resisted in every way possible by nonviolence. That's the vision of Jesus. That's in the Bible, too. He surely must know that. And Jesus comes straight out of the Jewish matrix. So it's how you read it. And again, I repeat, already in the, the gospel texts, if you go from Mark through Matthew and Luke into John, that's more or less chronologically, the voice of Jesus, not the actions of Jesus, tend to get rhetorically more and more violent. Jesus gets nastier steadily in name-calling and things like that. So what is happening is you have a re-violentization, if you, sorry for that awful word, a re-violentization of Jesus. And I repeat again, I trust Pilate, who got it right, who knew that he had to execute Jesus, but he didn't have to bother to round up his followers. That's history, and that's the way the Romans handled nonviolent resistance. Let's talk about the concept of martyrdom in both Jewish and Christian theology. To a lot of people, it seems suicidal 
to go get killed for the sake of God or for the sake of peace or some types of principles. And we see both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and even beyond individuals being willing to give their lives for God's name or their fellow believers or for Jesus. And it becomes in later church traditions or Jewish tradition, it becomes like an honor to get uh, slaughtered by the enemies of God. Is there a psychological issue with that? Or is truly that's the highest form of worship to, to die for the cause? Well, I want to be very careful here. First of all, anyone who wants to be a martyr wants a murderer. It is theologically impermissible to want to be a martyr because you know somebody's going to have to murder you. It is also one of the highest things a human being can do to know that what they believe in doesn't have to be a religion, by the way. We give a medal of honor to people, and it's not for religion, and it's not for martyrdom. We have other words for it, but we could use the word martyrdom. When people die for a cause, die to protect their own squad by falling on, a, say, a hand grenade or something like that, that is not wanting to be a martyr. You shouldn't want it. It's a reluctant necessity. If somebody, if I may use an example, if somebody like either Gandhi or Martin Luther King wanted to get martyred, if somebody say, well, it'll be good publicity, I think I'll go out and get myself killed, I think that would be obscene. And if you watch what Jesus is doing when he's in Jerusalem the week before his death, he gets out of the city every night to Bethany, which is a smart thing to do, and he's protected during the day in the city because the crowd is on his side. Mark mentions that four or five times. The authorities are against, but the crowd is protecting him, so they would risk a riot if they moved against him. So, yes, I think it is part of human nature that when we find a cause bigger than ourselves, it might be a family, it might be a tribe, it might be a clan, it might be a nation, it might be a religion. All of those are options within which we know people not wanting to die will take the risk of dying, when since it happens to police personnel and to fire personnel all the time. They don't want to necessarily sacrifice themselves, but it can happen. And if it does happen, that's the word we use, sacrifice. We don't just say died, because they died for others. So it is part of the glory of human nature that we will die for something. And in fact, we need to live for something bigger than ourselves to make life meaningful. And if necessary, if unfortunately necessary, we are willing to die for it. Now, in the New Testament, for example, to Jesus, knowing what happened to John the Baptist, would have certainly known that it was dangerous and that he might end up dead. But in one sense, that's no different than a modern situation where Martin Luther King knew exactly that he was doing was very, very dangerous, that he could be assassinated and had no intention of going looking for it and didn't want it, I would hope. But it happened. So martyrdom is just the peculiar religious name for a phenomenon that is part of our humanity. Sam Harris, spokesperson for many atheists, says that the difference between Islam and Christianity and Judaism is that the last two religions have the mediation of tradition to be able to reinterpret or modernize um, passages that can be seen as hurtful to humanity and that Islam is just straight, like people read it and, and go do whatever the book tells them. But somehow he, he ignores how tradition has 
brought about much violence using the Bible. Like in Western history, you know, the popes that support the Crusades using the Bible to to push that Luther's anti-Semitism. There's a lot of stuff that the the interpreters of the Bible have um, brought about because of their their poor readings. Do you think that there is some basis in what he's saying regarding Islam, or it's not a fair evaluation of the situation? Seems to me that what we are talking about is human beings must run their lives by both reason and revelation. Any time that human beings have tried to to run their lives totally on reason, rejecting all revelation, it's ended up as rather a disaster, and ditto when they ever try to do it by revelation alone. Somehow or other, there has to be a balance and a a, a dialectic, go back to my metaphor of two sides of a coin, again, between reason and revelation. That's what happened to Judaism. It had to go through the trials of the Enlightenment and figure out when the Enlightenment is Enlightenment and when it's Endarkenment. And they had to, they had to decide. They had to be able to read their sacred texts and say, all right, this goes back to something that you might understand, and this is why they would say this, say, I'm making it up in 500 BCE. We can no longer consider this acceptable today. They'd have to, in other words, take their texts, like we would might take our Constitution, and say at a certain point, this needs an amendment, or this needs to be quietly ignored, or whatever. Polite word might be outdated. Christianity is, I think, still going through this. It's gone through it too much maybe in Europe, and not enough in this country. And Islam has to do the same. Islam has to go through exactly the same thing. These are our sacred traditions. This is what the Sharia says. But... Do we still do that today? What Judaism had done, what Christianity is doing, what Islam must do, is hold on to both their revelation, their vision, but also to bring it out into the public square and see what other people think about it, and to ask themselves, in the same way as we might ask ourselves in this country, how come we have capital punishment for most of the civilized nations of the world don't do it anymore, and, and they'd have to do it in some kind of a, a coherent manner. It's not, well, let, let's use our sacred book as a kind of a menu, and we, yeah, we take this, dump that. We would have to ask ourselves in every case, why was this said at that time, whenever it was said, and is it still applicable today? And that's the only way, that's exactly what I'm doing with the, the, the Christian Bible, except, of course, that there is a norm in the Christian Bible itself. I'm not just saying, well, we shouldn't do this anymore, even though it says it. I'm saying the norm of the Christian Bible within the Bible is the historical Jesus and his nonviolent resistance. In one sense, we have an advantage. We have a criterion in the Bible, in our Bible itself. The problem is, of course, that we just don't follow it. So for the people that would say that if you humanize Jesus too much or historicize him too much and, and take away the divine attributes and the, or theological constructs around him, you're kind of left with just a historical figure, a Jewish leader who was embodying the best of the Torah. Where do you go from there? Because a lot of people would feel their lives are committed to something that is supernatural and that there's something that happened. What would differentiate 
that if you take away those elements that are so dear to some people? Well, first of all, that's a, that's a serious misunderstanding. The, Jesus was not just a nice Jewish boy. The Romans did not crucify publicly nice Jewish boys. They didn't crucify publicly nice Jewish philosophers. Jesus was crucified because he was an activist. And, and he claimed that his activism was the vision of God. He didn't simply say, well, you know, the, Rome, the legions are tough, so let's not go out and fight against them because they'll just destroy us. Let's use nonviolent resistance because they won't know what hit them. What Jesus said is, this is the kingdom of God. This is how God is going to clean up the earth, as it were. So, of course, it is. I, I don't use the word supernatural because to believe in the supernatural, you have to believe in the natural first. And that means sort of the natural is here, and every now and then God dips in like a CEO checking out the, the, <laughs> the, the factory floor, but is gone most of the time. I don't believe that for a second. I think what you're dealing with, if I were to use the word supernatural, I do not know anything in the whole history of the world more supernatural than nonviolent resistance to evil. It is the most supernatural thing and possibly the only thing that will save us as a species since escalatory violence may well destroy us. So, as far as I'm concerned, unless you have a bad theology in which God is absent most of the time, the world runs naturally, and every now and then God dips in and does something weird that get, catch our attention, if that's your theology, which I consider bad theology, then of course Jesus is just a nice Jewish boy. But the clearest thing we know about Jesus is that he proclaimed the kingdom of God. There's a massive consensus of scholarship on that. The kingdom of God is how God wants the world run. It's how God... The kingdom of God is like, what would happen if God drew up the federal budget? It's trying to imagine the world if God was running it, I mean, directly, sort of, you know. Jesus says the kingdom of God is when we participate with God nonviolently for justice on this earth. That is the most supernatural thing. Compared to that, the other things that people talk about are supernatural. I mean, I wouldn't even want to be bothered opposing them. It's like the difference between thinking that butterflies make a summer rather than summer makes a butterfly. <laughs> what Jesus does is the, for me, as a Christian, as a historian, first of all, what Jesus did, is what I've been saying, he practiced nonviolent resistance and proclaimed it was the vision of God. That's what he did. Now, whether I believe in that or whether I think he was just a nut is an act of faith. I can tell you as a historian, this is what I think he did. Then, presuming that history, I still have to decide, yes, but I, do I think he was totally wrong? Or do I think he was totally right that this is the vision of God? If God is a violent God, acting with punishment and all the rest of it, then Jesus was totally wrong. And therefore, I have to decide to avoid Jesus, and do I or do I not accept that vision of God? Last question. So, so what went wrong? Where in the 
in the embrace of his message did it get turned around into the militant church and the union with the Byzantine or Roman Empire at that time? Well, it would be nice to think that, you know, in the, the beginning everything was perfectly nice and then around the year um, 325 or something on the continent, everything went wrong. Imagine it in the air between Jesus and the ears of his first listeners. Imagine somebody hearing all of that from Jesus and saying, oh, what he's, in te what he's telling us is we should try first to be nonviolent. But of course, if that doesn't work, we all know. We can trust God to take the sword. What Jesus is up against, and what anyone who has the same vision is up against, is the normalcy of civilization. The way of the world has always been that you get peace through victory. The Romans would have said, we didn't invent this, we just got very good at it. But every empire that has ever been proclaims peace, and you get it after we've conquered you. It's the peace, in a way, of the graveyard, very quiet. So once somebody heard that, the pull of normalcy, it's like Paul writes, Christians cannot have slaves. How long did it take for somebody to say, whoa, well, now wait a minute, wait a minute. What he means is, of course, Christians have slaves, but they should be kind to them. I, you know, I would say half, maybe half the first readers, I'm making that up, but some of the first readers are, are already hearing him when he says that women and men are equal in the family and in the apostolate, and that women can be, of course, apostles. Some of the people hearing that, some of the people reading it, we know that because in his letter to the Corinthians, he's spending half the time struggling with them, or fighting with them, over the fact that they're not going to go along with his vision. It's already happening. So the pull of the world, the pull of Roman normalcy in terms of the New Testament, is already there. And in one sense, what is extraordinary, what is, if you will, supernatural, is that it ever got any traction at all. The, the surprise is that we really have the evidence in the New Testament forever there of why Jesus really was. We also have the evidence, of course, of changing Jesus. But you couldn't know he was changed if you didn't have the Sermon on the Mount as well as the book of Revelation. You could, see, you could guess that Jesus must have come saying, don't fight against the Romans because God is far more brutal than you could ever be and God's coming any day soon. The book that, the verb that keeps coming up in the book of Revelation, God's coming any day soon with the angels and you're going to slaughter the Romans. So don't bother. You could easily think, well, that's the message of Jesus. So if, so the, all the competing views of Jesus, did they all duke it out and ended up with just a compilation of, of different ideas? Or it somehow, everything was left there just in case, you know, by the people that redacted the New Testament said, okay, well, we have all these competing visions, we're going to leave them, and we'll let every individual kind of find what, what's meaningful to them. <laughs> well, I don't, 
I don't think it was quite so postmodern as that, David. I think what really happened is when they had to make a decision to compile what we call a canon, all of, all of the visions that were there, for example, before, were contenders. I mean, there was no way they were going to keep Paul's letters out. And there was no way they were going to be able to keep the letters attributed to Paul out. They had been there and some uh, congregation, some communities, they were part of their sacred texts, as it were, already. So it's not that, any, that anyone really wrote the New Testament. Uh, individuals who had no idea that they were going to be part of something called the New Testament were brought in together. And it's, it, it probably is a, a sort of respect to the tradition rather than saying, well, you've all of these different ideas, let's put them all in there and let them figure it out. They probably had no choice. All of these were contenders <laughs> for their vision. I, I think the marvelous thing for me, having spent my whole life with the Bible, is that both views are in there and you can see the struggle going on. And it is like, like that vision of Jacob, you know, struggling all night with God and limp, limping off into the dawn. It's a struggle between humanity and divinity that's really going on in the Bible at its deepest level. Divinity comes up with a marvelous vision of a just and nonviolent world. And the Bible says, okay, okay, we put that in, that's good. But come on, really, now? And so pretty much then you see that being quietly ignored. So if the book of Leviticus says, God speaking, the land belongs to me, you're all tenant farmers and resident aliens. That's in there. Yeah, we did take that out. But then pretty much we're saying, well, yes, but if I can't buy and sell land, maybe I can get yours because of loans and foreclosures. So you can watch the struggle between ordinary people, not evil people, ordinary people, to handle this kind of a radical vision from God. And it goes all the way through the Torah, the prophets, the wisdom literature, into Jesus and Paul. And the Bible is an honest, <laughs> an honest dialectic between that vision of a radical just earth and us trying to get around it. Wonderful. That summarizes very well. Thank you so much for being again on our show. And uh, I hope that uh, we can get your ideas out there. They're fascinating. And I wish uh, more scholars uh, were as uh, open and, and willing to share their thoughts with us. Thank you, David, very, very much. Anytime. Take care. Wonderful. Thank you so much.